Hello, we have a special announcement we would like to make today. From Mother's Day to Father's Day, we have decided to partner with World Hope International and their special project called TAP Effect. This will provide you with an opportunity to honor and remember a mother or a father figure in your life. They could either be a biological mother or father or a spiritual mentor who has touched your life in a special way. In honoring them, you will be able also to deliver safe, clean water to families. If you would like to donate to this project in honor of your mother or father or a special person in your life, and to help families around the world, please specify World Hope Tap Effect on your donation or in the message of your e-transfer. Also, please provide the name or the names of the person that you would like to honor. Thank you for considering this. Welcome to Whitewater Wesleyan Community Church, where we invite you to believe in Jesus, belong to his church, and become like him. Stay tuned for this week's message. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, and I'm reading verses 25 to verse 35. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Or if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears, let him hear. It's quite likely that all of us are being impacted directly or indirectly by a growing trend. It's called social media influencers. A blog on MediaKicks.com defines a social media influencer as a content creator with a social media following. Social media influencers develop a large following by sharing quality content that inspires, entertains, informs, and connects them with their followers. End of quote. Now, one type of influencer is the social media marketer. They are people who are hired by companies to promote their product. And in April of 2020, according to an article by Gary Henderson on the website 
digitalmarketing.org, market influencers on Instagram are powering a $1.7 billion industry. These influencers understand a simple principle. Everyone has influence, and they make use of a powerful tool to, include, uh, to increase theirs. But Jesus also understood the power of influence. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to the disciples, he said, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 14. Salt changes the flavor of food. Light changes the atmosphere of a room. And their presence influences their surroundings. And so what Jesus is saying is, disciples influence their world. Now in the scripture that I read prior to this sermon, Jesus gave a similar message. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Now this time Jesus was not speaking to his disciples. According to Luke chapter 14 verse 25, Jesus spoke these words to a large crowd that was following him. And it would seem that his concern was that they would understand what it meant to be one of his followers, to be a disciple. Jesus could never be accused of underselling what it means to follow him. He explained what he expected of his disciples. Why? Because his disciples were the salt of the earth. They would carry his flavor into the world. So Jesus made a very valid point. Salt is only good if it is salty. Tasteless salt isn't even fit for the manure pile. It doesn't even provide nutrients for the soil. It's simply thrown away. And in the same way, what is the use of tasteless Christianity or meaningless discipleship? Lloyd John Ogilvy, writing on this passage, comments, and I quote, Christ came to enable Christians with a tang, distinctive sharp, pungent, end of quote. So if we are to be anything, let us be full-flavored disciples of Christ. Now, if you've had any kind of association with the church for any length of time, you have likely tasted church juice. Now, in case you don't know what I mean by church juice, it's a punch-like drink, usually orange-flavored, and it's made of by dissolving crystals. Now generally, it's made too weak and the water's too warm. And from my days of Sunday school and t attending youth events and other church functions, I think I have, I have downed or consumed gallons of church juice. And each cup about as flavorless as the first one. Weak church juice. Well, that sort of reminds me of tasteless salt. And Christians should have more flavor 
than church juice. And we're called to be, to be full-flavored Christians. So how then do we become Christians carrying the full flavor of Christ? Well, Jesus explained this to the crowd that was following him in this passage. See, to be full-flavored Christians, we must commit to Christ. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me. In the large crowd that followed Jesus, there was a good possibility that many were present out of curiosity. Oh, they had heard about Jesus doing miracles and, uh, and performing great healings, and, and they were curious that maybe if they followed him, they would witness one. We may, we may suppose that a good percentage of this crowd had the same interest in Jesus as a storm hunter would have in a dark cloud. They really didn't have any interest in being his disciple. They weren't interest, interested in being committed to him. But the first step in discipleship to Christ is that Christ must become real and personal. He cannot be just an interest of curiosity, or he can't be just an interesting historical religious figure. He can't be somebody that you read about in a big black book. Discipleship begins when the Holy Spirit begins to reveal Christ into our hearts and lives. The Spirit shines the light of Jesus upon us, and he makes Christ known to us, and our response is then to walk in his light. Jesus must become the attraction of our hearts. See, a person doesn't become a disciple because they want to re rehabilitate themselves. Being a disciple isn't because... Um, you were born to the right parents. It's not inherited from your parents. It, being a, a disciple isn't because you were born in a Christian nation. One doesn't become a Christian by, by some generic osmosis. Each person must make their own commitment to Jesus Christ. When Jesus called Peter and Andrew from their fishing boat, the invitation was this, come, follow me. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. They committed to him. And so I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone comes to me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, then I have to have your commitment. You have to sign on to follow me. And he goes on to explain what it means to sign on with him. See, to be full-flavored Christians, Christ must have our love. In verse 26, we read, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Well, this is an extreme saying. The word hate is very strong. Now, Jesus is not teaching hatred of family or self-hatred. To make this say so is to misconstrue this message of Scripture. The best way to, to explain Scripture is to use Scripture. So in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, there's another similar saying of Jesus that sort of shines light on this passage. There we read, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So hate could mean loving something or someone more than than him. In the scriptures, the word hate can have two shades. 
When it's used in the active sense, it, mean, it could mean to have an enemy, a foe or a, an antagonist, someone that hates you and, well, it's hard not to hate them back. And, and usually when we think of the word hate, we use it in that sense. But however, in the scriptures, if it's used in the passive sense, it means more to shun or, or pay less attention to. We find this in the Old Testament story of Jacob. Now, Jacob had to flee his home because he deceived his father and he took his, the blessing that belonged to his brother. And so he ran to the home of his uncle Laban, his mother's brother. And he fell in love with Laban's daughter. His, and uh, her name was Rachel. And he worked seven years in order to uh, earn or to get her hand in marriage. And at the wedding, Laban deceived Jacob, and he replaced Rachel with her older sister, Leah. And then uh, Jacob had to work seven more years for Rachel. So here we go. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. Rachel, however, was his first love. In Genesis chapter 29, verse 29, we read, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Now, see what it says. He loved Leah. He just loved Rachel more. And then a few verses later in Genesis 29, 31, we read, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. The more literal translation of the, of the Hebrew would be, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, because that is the strength of that Hebrew word. It wasn't that Jacob was despising or he despised or he treated Leah cruelly. It was just that Rachel was the apple of his eye. And this is how we must interpret Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Comparatively, we cannot put anyone or anything, even our own selves, ahead of Christ. Jesus understood that if some people would follow him, they would be ostracized by their family. There would be parents who would disown their, um, their children. There would be some children who would disown their siblings. And Jesus was saying, this is the cost of following me. You must choose me before family. You must choose me even before your personal comforts. Now this message can be applied to churches as well. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus spoke uh, through John to the seven churches in Asia. And he told the church in Ephesus that he had a problem with them. With them. They had left their first love. Now, in every way, they looked and sounded like an ordinary Christian church. The problem was their devotion for Christ waned and and. and, and they were pursuing something different. Maybe it was a doctrinal uh, distinction, or maybe there was some internal struggle. We, we don't know, but, but we do know that something diminished their love for Christ. And Jesus told them if, if they didn't repent and, and be restored, that their lamp would be extinguished. In, in other words, they would no longer have an influence or him, they would no longer be salty Christians. 
And his message to the church at Laodicea was similar. Jesus was bothered by the temperature of this church, the temperature of their love. And it wasn't white hot. Jesus said, you're lukewarm. They were just tepid in, in their devotion for Jesus. Well, something too had distracted them. And Jesus was very explicit in describing their end. Jesus said he would spit them out of his mouth. Why? They tasted like weak church juice. You see, the church that loses its first love loses its witness. It's no longer salty. A lukewarm church is not only spewed out of the mouth of Jesus, it's ignored by its community around us. Because there's nothing as tasteless as Christianity that has no love for Jesus. John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel, wrote, and I quote, The critical question for our generation, and for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? End of quote. Answering that question goes a long way in determining whether we're, we are followers of Christ in love with him, or whether we're just people hoping to secure an insurance policy after we die. And to be full-flavored Christians, to be full-flavored Christians, Christ must ever be our everything. At the center of Jesus' teaching in this passage are two parables. They have the same lesson. The first one is about the construction of a tower. The builder makes a budget before starting construction. Why? Because they don't want to be embarrassed by getting the building half up and then having to quit construction. And the second parable is about a king who is facing war. And he must determine whether his army, outnumbered two to one, can be victorious over this approaching army. And if he isn't confident, he will seek terms of peace. Now Jesus sandwiched these parables between two very profound statements. Just prior to the parables, Jesus said, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And at the end of the parables, he concluded, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Whoa. You know, Jesus, uh, in these two statements, he identifies those who cannot be his disciples. First, the person who does not carry his cross. Second, the person who does not give up everything he has. Well, the messenger, messages are basically the same. To carry one's cross is to give up everything you have. To carry your, one's cross is a reference to how a victim in a Roman crucifixion carried the cross piece to his place of crucifixion. And we know that Jesus stumbled under the beam that he was carrying as he went to his own death. So to carry one's cross is to give up everything one has. It's to count everything as loss for Christ. Is Jesus asking too much? 
I see put the cost of discipleship way too high. Well, let us consider what he did or what he paid for us on the cross and for our sins. Consider it. He sold out completely to become our Savior. He did not argue to maintain his glory in heaven. He was made in human likeness. He took the form of a servant, and he humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so he asked nothing from us that he hasn't done for us. And this brings us to the parables. You see, discipleship is like budgeting to build a tower. Discipleship is like planning to go to war. It requires careful consideration. One doesn't stumble into discipleship. One doesn't wake up some morning and go, oh, I think I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. See, a, a disciple is a person who has made a careful determination of their lives, of who they want to serve, where they want to go, and how they want to live. But there's another message in this parable. In considering the cost, we ask ourselves the question, are we able in our own resources to fulfill the requirements of discipleship? And of course, the answer is absolutely not. There isn't, this isn't something that we can do by ourselves. We cannot reach the full measure of discipleship in our own ability. It's a tower we cannot build, and it's a war we cannot win. Something or someone needs to be added to the equation in order for it to work. And of course that is, we must be enabled by the Holy Spirit to meet the demands of discipleship. And with that, we, we must also be confident that when we give up everything we have, we gain all that there is to be found in Jesus Christ. In selling out for Jesus, we're buying into Jesus. And we gain much more than we lose. This, this points us to another parable of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, where he, where he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, or like a, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had, and he bought that field. He sold out so he could buy in. And one day Peter said to Jesus, We have left everything to follow you. Jesus replied, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Matthew 19, 29. Jim Elliott, who gave up his life as a missionary on the mission field, wrote in his journal on October the 28th, 1949. It's a famous quote. He is, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And listen to this. It is what is gained it is what is gained that makes disciples of Christ full-flavored. See, if Christianity is just merely giving up or selling out and surrendering all without anything in return, well, then it just becomes another dark hole. But the good news is that nothing we give up is ever lost. 
everything we surrender because we love Jesus is replaced by something that's much better. We give up our guilt. He gives us his forgiveness. We give up our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. We give up ourselves, he gives us himself. We give up our pain, he gives us his healing. We give up our worry, he gives us his peace. We give up our pleasures, he gives us his joy. We give up our delights, he gives us his love. We give up our despair, he gives us his hope. We give up our problems, he gives up his grace. We give up our bitterness, he gives us his sweetness. We give up everything, and he gives us all we need. And then, and only then, are we the salt of the earth. Then, and only then, we begin to share the full flavor of Christ in our community. Are we doing that? Are you in love with Jesus? Is he flavoring your life? Let us pray. Father God, thank you for all that we have in you. And we're mindful that we don't give up anything, but Father, that you replace it a hundredfold. Father, as people listen to this message and as we come to the conclusion of this service, would you draw us to yourself? Would you bring us into your presence? Father, would you search our hearts? And may you call us to yourself again. And give us a willingness, Lord, to fall once more at your feet and say, I surrender it all. I give it to you. And I give it joyfully. And I give it, Father, with gratitude. Because you have given to us everything. You have given to us your only Son. Thank you for the cross. And thank you for all that is found in him. We pray in Jesus' name.